0: Hello everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you tonight. It's uh, Wednesday, March 20th, 2019. This is show number 270 and uh, we welcome you to the program. Tonight we're going to be talking about tsunamis. Next week is Tsunami Awareness Week and you're thinking like What? The Carolina tsunami? Well, we're going to talk about that. The threats uh, of tsunamis may uh, are are around the world, but is the East Coast included on that? So uh, that is something we're going to talk about tonight. We don't have our guest with us right now, uh, but our guest is Kevin Miller. He works for the California Emergency Services Office for the Governor of California. And uh, Kevin is in traffic right now. Imagine that in California. So uh, he'll be joining us in just a little bit. Uh, But we are live broadcast tonight, so we'd love for you to follow along with us. You can do that on Facebook Live, Periscope, and on our YouTube page. If you'd like to interact with us, maybe send us a comment or question, you can do that. Just uh, push uh, push the comment on those uh, platforms, and we'll be able to uh, monitor them throughout the show. And if you have any questions or comments, uh, we can address them that way. And if you're listening on the podcast version we'll let our guest towards the end of the show talk about how you can reach out to uh, to him on social media or on a different on a website and uh, get more information about our topic tonight. So we're going to again uh, be talking about tsunamis and uh, tsunami awareness and preparation or preparedness week is uh, next week, uh, the last week of March. So uh, looking forward to uh, talking about this cool topic tonight with Kevin Miller and he'll be along with us here in just a little bit. But before he uh, joins us, I'm going to toss it to James Barton. And James, uh, you've got some news to share with us.
1: Yeah, we got all sorts of news happening. And I'm actually going to start by popping up uh, radar here across the Carolinas. Just to let everyone know, we do have a few showers, a few areas of heavy rain moving across the area. No severe weather tonight, although, you know, this rain kind of made it cool in some place. Uh, only topping out in the 40s today in the Triangle. And that was a bit of a change of pace from where we've been. If you're like me here in the Charlotte area, you've been making sure you keep up with the Uh, allergy meds every day because today is the first day of spring and uh, certainly nature seems to have caught on to that and uh, trying to ward off those allergies and luckily doing so far pretty well on that we had some breaking news this afternoon we're going to roll some video footage here from Florida and Georgia Hurricane Michael in October of 2018 I'm sure you remember it well along with uh, Hurricane Florence the names Michael and Florence being retired from future use on tropical storms and hurricanes the devastating storms as you recall loss of life throughout the southeast and destruction in several communities particularly in the hardest hit areas of Florida where Hurricane Michael came ashore nearly wiping out some towns as a near Category 5 storm. And then we also, of course, had Florence here in the Carolinas in September, came ashore and just kind of moved very slowly as a hurricane and eventually a tropical storm over us and led to region-wide flooding. Well, the World Meteorological Organization announced today that those names will no longer be used for future storms. They're being retired and replaced with Francine and milton and i think that was pretty much to be expected we were just waiting for that official word to come on down and now we do have it on last week's show we told you about the big storm moving over the central part of the united states it came with several names the bomb cyclone being one of them that picked up a hashtag and usage in the national media well it was our own chris jackson who made a very good point that not only was it going to be a big flooding event but also one that had some serious impact on agriculture Farmers, ranchers, well, they're trying to clean up and figure out what to do. They got several inches of rain last week on grounds that were too saturated to handle it after a long winter with snow, and now they've got even more rain on the way. So they're trying to figure out what the economic impacts of this are and what the next steps are. Let's take a listen to some of this new video we got in today from Nebraska.
2: Uh, right now where our feedlots are just going through this horrific storm that we just had, and amongst many other feedlots you know, feed and feeders and cattlemen across this uh, state that was affected, but it's a loss of performance, the cattle are tired, they're, uh, they get sick easily. It really adds up quite a bit, and it's really hard on, on the people that work there and take care of it. been a really, really tough deal, but there's so many other producers that even have it worse yet. You know, they're trying to find their cattle and, and get to them and things like that, so there's multiple stories across this state of, of the devastation. What we really want to try to accomplish is it is a process to get federal disaster into this state and get it started. The biggest difficulty we have is like if the comment was made, if the tornado comes through and, and an hour later you can see the devastation, you know what it is. It's so hard at this point in time right now because we may not know for weeks the full extent of the damages.
1: that's exactly right it will be a little while longer before we know the exact extent of the damage And you can see in this video here that they're just trying to repair the infrastructure as the military now coming in to assist with repairs in the communities and i think what we're looking at here is a video of sandbagging after several dam failures and roadway failures and just trying to get a handle on all of this water and you can see that here in this video because we've gotten more rain on the way and this is not only an event isolated from Nebraska, but we have flood warnings up and down the entire Mississippi River Basin because now all of this water has to flow south before eventually entering. Gulf of Mexico, so it'll be another week or so before this is all set and done. And just take a look at these satellite imageries. Look at that very well-defined riverway, waterway on the left side of the screen there, and just look how it swells on the right-hand side. And some of this is farmland, but some of this is also communities that are being impacted. And so our thoughts are with all those folks out in the central part of the United States that are continuing to uh, recover from this as this disaster continues and is ongoing. Shifting gears now, take a look at this video, North Carolina native flying on the International Space Station tonight. NASA astronaut Christina Cook arrived this week in a launch and docking that you saw right here on the Carolina Weather Group live channel. Christina, along with NASA astronaut Anna McClain, who you can also see there on the left hand side of your screen, are scheduled to perform the first all-female spacewalk on March the 29th. That will also be on our live channel. Now, Expedition 59 here, one of the last flights that the United States is hoping to uh, hitch with the Russians to and from the International Space Station because that uh, SpaceX program is coming together and we're hoping that uh, in the not too distant future we'll be able to launch ourselves from U.S. soil to and from the International Space Station. Well, special congratulations going out tonight to the Charlotte Douglas International Airport here in Charlotte on their achievement of becoming a storm-ready community. Seen here being presented with that certification by the National Weather Service in Greenville-Spartanburg. That is certainly uh, good news. I will be flying out of there in a few weeks, and you've seen it in the airport there, and in other places as well too. They have those storm shelters that are designated so that if severe weather is ever coming through the area while you're in the terminals, you've got a place to go. Speaking of severe weather, we've been covering this for the past several weeks here on the Carolina Weather Group, but the recovery from those deadly tornadoes that ripped across the southeast some, oh, two and a half weeks ago, when we've been focusing a lot on Lee County, Alabama, you'll recall there that they lost 23 lives in those devastating storms. Well, our friends at the Sirens Project, they're an Atlanta-based storm chasing group, loaded up their equipment and organized a drive of supplies and drove them from Atlanta down to Lee County. And we will be talking to the Sirens Project coming up in about half an hour right here on the Carolina Weather Group to learn more about their trip down to Lee County, Alabama, and the recovery efforts that they saw and participated in. But for now, it's 31, Let's bring back in Scotty Powell and the rest of the Carolina Weather Group panel. Scotty?
0: Thank you, James. Looking forward to the interview tonight with the Sirens Project. Uh, Just some great relief efforts going on down in uh, Georgia and Alabama from the tornadoes and and looking forward to hearing from those folks who uh, we're just recently down there and was able to ex- uh, experience uh, the damage firsthand and also talk with the folks who were affected by those tornadoes. So we'll get to that uh, towards the end of the program. But right now, I want to bring in our guest, uh, Kevin Miller. He works for the California Emergency Services Office. Uh, it's currently in Burbank, uh, California, tonight. So, uh, Kevin, welcome to uh, the Carolina Weather Group. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Glad uh, to be good. Yeah, we're, we're happy to have you. So... Uh, our first question that we normally do with our guests, who, whose first time, is how did you get involved in tsunamis? I mean, what what is uh, what is the story with tsunamis, hurricanes? How did you uh, get interested in this particular field?
3: Ah, that's a good question. Um, well, I got into uh, emergency management through earthquakes. Actually, uh, I live in Northern California, but uh, had moved. I ended up moving down here to Southern California to work on the Northridge earthquake. And at some point, one of my, my boss started talking about there's this tsunami group. And I said, are you, you know, <laughs> I thought he was kind of crazy. Um, but uh, it, it turns out that any coastline in the world could be impacted by this, including ours in California. And we're on in the Pacific Basin. Uh, there are a lot of earthquake threats. And so it's something that... Uh, a national group started working on uh, looking more at back in the 90s and as soon as you know we started looking at it I became interested and so it's something uh, that I have uh, taken some of my combined emergency management experience and GIS mapping analysis experience to work with this group
0: well I know we're coming up on tsunami preparedness and awareness week and, and so Uh, Before we get too involved in our our topic tonight, um, for those folks who may not be familiar with tsunamis or may have just seen them on TV and and news stories and things like that, can you tell us what exactly a tsunami
3: is? Uh, Sure. Uh, Tsunamis are basically they can be large or small and they are uh, uh, some abnormal uh, uh, movement of the water almost always caused by Uh, earthquake, which uh, moves enough of the uh, ocean floor to displace water and uh, send a pulse of water to some shoreline. Um, And those could be from a distant source for California, uh, which would come from Japan or Alaska from around the Pacific or from a local source if you are living in one of those places like Japan, Alaska, or even the Pacific Northwest.
4: Hey, Kevin. So I wanted to ask a question. Are there different types of uh, tsunamis? You mentioned they primarily come from earthquakes, um, but I think recently we had one that was kind of an underground landslide. Can you kind of uh, elaborate on that?
3: Yes, uh, they can. Like I said, it's, it's anything that displaces water. So a landslide could also displace water um, and we find that uh, those earthquakes that uh, happen can also trigger landslides whether it's under the under the surface of the ocean or next to the ocean that falls into the ocean and that kind of triggers a landslide and kind of um, there's somewhat different threats in that uh, 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 earthquake-triggered tsunami um, generally needs these subduction zone faults that dive beneath the continent and uh, snap back and kind of trigger land movement, as opposed to something like the San Andreas Fault that slides back and forth uh, or slides adjacent to um, itself or another fault, those don't generally uh, uh, move enough or cause displacement of the the seafloor to move water. Similarly, if uh, uh, a landslide occurs, that is going to move water. Um, The differences with uh, uh, earthquake fault uh, generating a, a a a line of water coming towards us from uh, someplace like Japan or Alaska is that we do have that line of water that could impact the entire coast, whereas something like a landslide is more like dropping a pebble in a pond and it sends ripples outward. Um, But it's it's not going to affect the entire coast, probably just what is happening, something close by. But these are tricky things in that we don't know necessarily where those landslides might occur and uh, so it's hard to know which particular section of the coast would be impacted.
5: So I have a question for you, and I know this is something that gets brought up a lot, Um, especially there was an event at the end of December in Sanibel area along like the West Florida um, Naples location, and they had this thing called a medio tsunami. So what's the difference between that and a regular tsunami? Mm -hmm.
3: So a meteor tsunami is something, it's a, a weather phenomenon, uh, triggers uh, something that I, um, it's not as well understood, but my understanding of it, and I'm not a meteorologist by any stretch, um, uh, is that uh, a line or a squall, something, I think there are some of them are called a, a don't don't quote me on that, but <laughs> something, uh, a, a line or a squall moving across the continent could also then uh, come across the water and come down on the surface of the water and uh, displace water coming toward the coast. So uh, I think these are really rare that the right conditions can form, but uh, uh, it's something that can happen. Kevin Ricky
6: here, I'm gonna jump in with a question. Um, what are some of the, the most famous tsunamis or one of the more recent tsunamis that have impacted the United States coastline?
3: Um, there are a couple that stand out. And the most recent one was the Tohoku uh, Japan earthquake and tsunami that occurred in March, uh, 2011. And of course that devastated Japan, Northern Japan Um, But then it came across, it caused some damage in Hawaii, as well as uh, in California, actually about uh, $100 million in property damage to coastal infrastructure. Unfortunately, one person died um, who went down to the mouth of a a river mouth, the Klamath River in far northern California. um, And the wave uh, uh, surges actually came behind a spit of land that that person was on uh, there, um, uh, they washed up actually a month later, about 300 miles north in Northern Oregon. Um, so we want to avoid any loss of life, of course, and uh, we have taken lessons from that, uh, that tsunami and uh, others and put it into everything that we do. Um, prior to that, uh, there had been our, our, our most notable tsunami was from 1964 from the Great Alaska Earthquake. Uh, And that uh, destroyed uh, the waterfront in Crescent City, California, uh, did some damage. It actually killed 12 people in California. Um, And and so that was a a significant tsunami. We've had about six that have triggered the emergency alert system or uh, emergency actions in California in the last nine years. But uh, most of those um, are not going to be they haven't been inundating tsunamis. They typically impact water infrastructure, uh, but we have procedures in place for uh, any severity of tsunami.
6: Along the West Coast United States, is there a more significant risk for Hawaii or the West Coast?
3: Well, it's different. Um, The West Coast has very high risk north of cape mendocino california all the way up to vancouver island because of the cascadia subduction zone that stretches between those two locations immediately offshore south of cape mendocino in california our um, most significant risk is from a distant event coming from the aleutians arc uh, in alaska That uh, the portion of that island chain that would be pointed directly at california uh, and similarly for uh, Hawaii, uh, they kind of view themselves as a, a bullseye in the middle of the Pacific, and they can get hit uh, from one of these distant events coming from a seduction zone from around the Pacific. They don't have as much uh, threat
0: locally.
6: And then let's shift gears to the other coast here. How about the, the East Coast of the United States? Uh, you know, a lot of us live on the coast and probably don't ever think about the threat of a tsunami here. But as you mentioned earlier, every coastline has some threat, correct?
3: That's right. Um, <laughs> I think it's considered uh, talking. We work closely with um, uh, all states and territories. So we have uh, colleagues uh, who work on this issue on the East Coast. Um, there are threats from um, the Canary Islands and from the Puerto Rico Trench uh, potentially uh, triggering a, a distant event for for the East Coast. Um, the coastline on the East East Coast is is much um, there's a much wider shelf and and so there's certainly a threat of inundation there um, and it's going to be certainly from a distant uh, source.
6: If there were to be a tsunami on the East Coast, what would it kind of look like? Would it be kind of similar to some of our hurricanes and storm surge, uh, the water levels, or would it, I guess, vary depending on the type of earthquake and or landslide or whatever occurred?
3: Yeah, I think you could draw a, a somewhat of an analogy with a hurricane storm surge. Each one of these events is um, is, is going to be somewhat different in terms of uh, the amount of water moved, um, the uh, the direction it's coming from, uh, and so and and even whether you're going to have a positive or a negative wave based on whether the um, the source uh, dropped down or uplifted ahead of the, uh, to push the water, or drew, drew it out. Drew it out. Um, so uh, what we're, the, the way to it, that this has been addressed is to create inundation maps using modeling, because we don't have a long history of these events um, within recorded history, and, and taking the models and uh, uh, the combination of those models drawing a worst case line, beyond which no inundation is expected from any one scenario coming from around the Pacific. And that's the best way to, to uh, provide information that people can use to plan uh, how far they need to go inland if one of these events occurs.
6: You, you mentioned positive versus negative wave. I'm not sure I've ever heard that term before. Can you explain what
3: that is? Um, I uh, Basically, there are three natural warning signs for a tsunami. If you feel strong shaking and you're at the coast, you want to potentially move to high ground. Um, if you uh, hear abnormal ocean roar, uh, an abnormal ocean roar, uh, or you know something that you're not used to hearing, and you're familiar with the ocean there, and the and the the third one is whether you see water draw out um, abnormally far. Uh, and the flip side of that is the water would. Uh, rush in first so uh, that's what I mean by negative versus positive
0: hey Kevin I guess one of the um, I guess one of the more recent major tsunamis uh, that's hit the the continent was the uh, March 11th uh, or March of 2011 earthquake that 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 uh, happened in the Pacific Ocean caused a, uh, a tsunami in ja- Japan so uh, and that's the most images you know we saw a lot of video uh, on YouTube and social media and things like that uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that tsunami and what made it so catastrophic and, and maybe how uh, videos and cell phones and, and things like that really uh, portrayed this event to be bigger but also I'm sure it gave some evidence to, to folks who they've got that warning to actually see the tsunami coming in. So can you talk a little bit about, about that, uh, that major tsunami that we saw in Japan uh, back in 2011?
3: Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, that event was uh, a 9.0, one of the largest recorded earthquakes and the displacement that they saw in the, um, the trench, the trench off of Northern Japan um, was a, uh, it was it was huge it moved i think uh 50 uh, it it moved about 50 feet of along the fault um uh, and along a long uh, length of the fault ruptured um and so it it created um, a much larger tsunami than they had planned for or expected in japan they have a thousand years of um, basically they they got their thousand year event And uh, the planning that they had done was some of the mapping was uh, looking at events that had occurred in the 1800s. And and so because of their uh, long history, they had uh, looked back to some uh, smaller tsunamis that they had experienced. So um, they have since uh, revised their evacuation lines, moving them much further inland. Um, some of their evacuation structures, um, they have what uh, they have created a lot of barriers and vertical evacuation structures, and people survived in some of those, and some of them uh, the the emergency managers and the city officials climbed to the top of a multi-story building which was then overtopped and a lot of them didn't make it. Um, they had barriers that they uh, had built to uh, block tsunamis, and uh, those were overtopped as well. Uh, so um, they had um, a significant loss of life, I think t- up to somewhere between 18 and 23,000 people. Um, but ninety between 95 and 100% of the people um, survived. There were very few people who uh, were impacted or uh, died because of the earthquake. Most of the deaths were because of tsunamis. Um, so that event um, was huge for Japan. You're right, it was like Mar- it was March eleventh, twenty eleven. And they consider that their um 11 uh, their nine eleven is three eleven. So that was hey, yep. ten yep. hours to get across the California.
7: Yeah, I want to get in here and just uh, ask uh you know, for folks at home that uh that find interest in tsunamis, especially after, you know. You have these big earthquakes uh, <clears throat> out in the oceans how can they track tsunamis that you know from their home
3: uh, there's a few uh websites that you can get um, information about um your maps and your your uh, local threat so we start we've uh, developed one called tsunami which has a lot of preparedness information and then uh from in terms of a uh Understanding a live uh, uh, tsunami as it's unfolding, you can go to tsunami.gov, tsunami.gov, and that's the national or the uh, tsunami warning centers. There's the National Tsunami Warning Center in Alaska, and the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center in Hawaii, uh, and they're tracking earthquakes around the world constantly, continuously. And if something, um, uh, if there's a large earthquake, they're going to be Looking at that to see if it's potentially tsunamiogenic. They also have a system of deep ocean um, assessment buoys. Uh, uh, about 60 of these buoys in the open ocean that are have a pressure sensor uh, that can detect about a centimeter of movement in the ocean. And um, these these events uh, uh, these will they are able to trigger. Uh, or receive uh, information from these buoys. So they'll, uh, if something, if a large earthquake occurs, one of these, um, the National Tsunami Warning Center or the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center will be analyzing that event. They'll be sending out information. They'll be running models and they'll be um, uh, tracking the, the buoys to confirm that an event has occurred and then sending out information um, via their their website and, and through um, various means, email, uh, um, Twitter, and texting, both to the public and to emergency managers.
0: Uh, Kevin, the National Weather Service, obviously they have a advisory watch warning um, program that they do. Uh, It seems like NOAA, the the Tsunami Warning Centers, they also have uh, that type of uh, criteria. Can you talk to us a little bit about the advisory watches warnings uh, process for uh, tsunamis and then I also want to uh, piggyback off that and talk about what you guys do. I, I know there in California you have your own mitigation, your own plan when when these things are issued.
3: Sure. Um, so the national or the tsunami warning centers uh, both use the same alert system as the rest of the weather service. Uh, um, it's uh, four different levels. A warning is the most severe. And a warning in this case for a tsunami means they expect inundation and the uh, action is uh, uh, evacuate the mapped inundation area. An advisory is also a life-threatening uh, um, alert. Um, and it's designed for those that are on the water or near the water. And, um, because these events are occurring in the water, they can trigger dangerous, deadly, unnavigable currents. Um, They can destroy harbor infrastructure that's not designed to withstand these currents that are um, coming in and out every 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, uh, And so the recommendation from an advisory is to get off and away from the water. And then there's a third level, which is a watch. And in the case of tsunamis, uh, that means for your section of coast, the analysis is being run, models are being run, um, and stay tuned. Stay tuned and they'll either upgrade you or downgrade you to being safe. Um, and the fourth level is an information statement, which means there's been a significant earthquake in the Pacific or the Atlantic, typically something above a seven or a seven and a half, uh, but a tsunami is not expected. It's not a tsunamigenic earthquake. Uh, so when we get one of those um, alerts, then uh, our Uh, 20 coastal counties, I'll speak from the example of California and recent uh, tsunamis that that have triggered one of these alerts, then uh, the National Tsunami Warning Center at the the federal level will uh, convene a a conference call. Um, In our case, we uh, deal with the National Tsunami Warning Center in Alaska, who's responsible for alerting North America. And so they'll convene a call of the uh, potentially affected uh, state coastlines. Um, And uh, they'll convene that call every hour um, as long as there's a threat. And we'll take that information and convene a call uh, following emergency management protocol down the chain with our coastal counties. We have 20 of those in California. Um, And that's basically to provide a couple of pieces, three key pieces of information uh, when is the tsunami expected to impact our coastline? How big is it going to be? And what are the local conditions? And we also look at this as an opportunity. Um, we have eyes on the coast from our local emergency managers um, to be able to either provide information or ask questions. And then um, since these are tricky events and they're really impacted by the coastline, the topography, the amount of water, the directivity, uh, the size of the earthquake, uh, the the distance uh, uh, away from the source um, there may be heightened areas for instance in Crescent City in California. We know that's a uh, an area of heightened concern for many of these events so um, that the the, um, the response strategy is an opportunity to hone in on areas that may need um, additional information and then talking with the federal. Um, government up the chain and local emergency or um, government officials down the chain provides a good information flow.
6: Kevin, we had a viewer question come in from Kathleen. She lives in South Carolina and, you know, Charleston, South Carolina has a large earthquake history, a long earthquake history. Um, yes. Would a major quake in the Charleston
3: area pose a tsunami risk? Um, there's a potential, uh, like I said, for uh uh, landslides or um, some movement, so it's not uh, out of the question. Uh, I don't know the specifics, uh, uh, to be honest with you, of uh, the, the, uh, the Charleston coastline and whether there are, you know, like in California, if we have cliffs next to the, the ocean, that's a potential for a landslide or something to drop into the water and um, uh, cause a problem. But uh, as far as a subduction zone earthquake, like I was talking about off of Japan, I was going to mention that that's not necessarily a threat for most areas in uh, uh, the continental United States, aside from um, the Pacific Northwest or Northern California, Oregon and Washington.
6: So to kind of sum it up, perhaps more of a basic scale, the tsunami risk is mainly caused by earthquakes that have an epicenter centered over water and not one that would be like just a couple miles inland from South Carolina perhaps?
3: That's right. That's okay. that's um, yeah. Um, the, the like I said, the potential, the potential if one occurs under land would be if it triggered a landslide. Gotcha. Perfect.
6: Uh, so last question here. Uh, we are
3: coming up on Tsunami Awareness Week and
6: Tsunami Preparedness Week. Talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about what people can do to get ready if uh, if they live on the coast and they are under a tsunami threat
3: uh sure the tsunami preparedness week is uh something that uh the the national Weather service uh supports and it's uh uh, tsunami preparedness in california is uh, march 25th through 29th so um there are websites that uh, uh, we have uh, created uh, tsunamizone.org and uh, people can go there and look for activities whether um, it's a local talk or uh, an, uh, uh, an awareness fair. One of the uh, um, uh, the best no- the best type of events that we see are people or groups or families or communities who know where their um, uh, hazard inundation zone is, and they'll take what they'll, they'll undertake what they call a tsunami walk, and, and a group of people will walk from a point on the coast. To a point of high ground. And um, so that's kind of a a good way to get the muscle memory going to figure out what your route to safety might be so that you don't have to figure that out in the middle of the night when you get uh, an alert or some kind of notification. And we found that uh, worked well in our uh, tsunami potentially prone areas in uh, Crescent City, Del Norte County, the northernmost county in California practice this drill for their during uh, tsunami preparedness week the year prior to the japan event and then when they were put into a a warning for the first time in uh, uh, california's history uh, using that protocol they uh, felt okay about evacuating at 3 a.m everyone said it felt like a drill so um those kinds of activities are are things that um are are um Uh, available to be seen on the website and uh, it's an opportunity for uh, uh, the state and and local government officials to acknowledge the hazard and encourage um, uh, uh, everyone to go and take a look and see if they uh, understand where their hazard is. There's a couple of websites where you can type in an address and determine whether you're in or out of a tsunami inundation zone and then get some pointers on ways that you can uh, start to understand your hazard and prepare. And it's pretty simple to do. To understand what to do once you know where your hazard is. It's just to protect yourself from uh, any local shaking and then get to high ground and then stay there.
6: Awesome information. Uh, One last question that I kind of just thought of. So let's say somebody has an interest in tsunamis or earthquakes, Uh, what's some of the ways they can get involved in this field and perhaps contribute to research in the future?
3: um well there's uh, a lot of resources on that uh particular webpage. there are links to um the uh, uh, the national weather service has a lot of scientists but um, there are a lot that we work with in state local and federal government who work on this hazard um, uh, we're hiring somebody in the near future so uh you can go to uh any any number of uh uh, probably government websites and type in the word tsunami and see what comes up in terms of uh, jobs. But um, there are, are uh, it's a scientific field. So um, uh, large scientific conferences like the American Geophysical Union has um, topics and sessions on this kind of information where students can get uh, their work uh, they, uh, that they um, uh, have published and worked on. Um, recognized and discussed, and, and uh, so I think getting into the, it's something you can study in school and something you can apply for in the field.
0: Well, Kevin, we, we appreciate it. I have one last question for you. I know uh, sure. here in the southeast, uh, hurricanes are a big things. So a lot of emergency managers prepare for hurricanes. They do uh, simulations and their EOCs, Um, How do you guys go about this? Do you do a yearly activity or maybe every couple of months activity uh, to make sure everyone in in California, um, not only the citizens, but also emergency management uh, and and local law enforcement stuff are ready for tsunamis?
3: Oh yeah, that's a great question. We do as a centerpiece of uh, tsunami preparedness in our most tsunami prone area in far Northern California a few years ago, they started doing uh, what they call a tsunami warning communications drill test. And so that's a systems test different from uh, an evacuation drill with people. This tests the system from end to end. And it was kind of a pioneering effort to start to do this, um, taking um, live uh, uh, alert codes coming from the National Tsunami Warning Center and uh, getting permission from the a- uh, Federal Communications Commission uh, to use these to be able to activate sirens on the coast where those exist, um, and put the scroll through the emergency alert system on television screens that say a tsunami warning. And then a voiceover would say, this is a test. Um, so uh, that has been uh, a, a systems test that is. has um, Uh, It it's really good to um, make sure everything works. And I think the the catalyst behind that was uh, on a Pacific island somewhere, somebody pushed a button uh, when uh, an actual tsunami was occurring. And the message that came out was, this is a test. So they want to make sure all the equipment is working, all the messaging is working. And if something fails, then it's still considered a success because uh, we learned that that Um, that piece of equipment or communications protocol or uh, personnel protocol didn't work. And so we want to, you know, certainly test that out during a drill as opposed to during the real event.
0: That's some great information. Well, Kevin, um, we'll kind of close. if Again, if you uh, don't mind, uh, a couple of those websites that you had mentioned, how folks can stay tuned with this, and if, if you have any other links or, or, or social media accounts that folks can follow, uh, we'd love for you to, to promote those as well.
3: Oh, yeah, of course. Um, the uh, We created a tsunamizone.org as kind of a central repository or go-to place for preparedness information. Um, the the um, alert and warning Uh, Piece of it that's happening. If a real tsunami is happening, is tsunami.gov and tsunami.ca.gov is uh, uh, California's uh, some of the research and development that has occurred in California.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for that, Uh, Kevin. We appreciate your time. I know uh, it's kind of a hectic afternoon, so. I appreciate uh, you uh, being with us tonight, and we hope that uh, next week goes well with the preparations, and hopefully it's a pretty quiet uh, year for you there in California.
3: Appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: No problem. All right. Well, I'm going to uh, toss it to James Briarton. James, along with some of our other panelists, was able to get together with uh, our good friends, uh, The Sirens Project, who you saw a little tease earlier in the show. And uh, James, you guys had a, a great interview last night talking about all the uh, all the things that they've been able to do down in the South.
1: Yeah, that's right, Scotty. A little bit earlier in the show, we reintroduced you to our friends at the Sirens Project, an Atlanta-based storm chaser group, who, if you recall from the show we did with them last year, used drones to collect data and monitor storms. They went down to Lee County, Alabama, to help the folks devastated by the recent tornadoes there. And we started our interview last night by asking them, as Atlanta-based storm chasers, why did they feel compelled to go back to the hardest hit areas to help out those residents?
8: Uh, well, basically, um, you know, Chris uh, can attest to this too. We were uh, all chasing that day, and uh, it was pretty, pretty early on uh, when that supercell developed. We started getting reports of, um, you know, extreme damage and even a, a casualty situation. And, uh, you know, we've done in the past uh, help with Florence, uh, Hurricane Florence in North Carolina, and uh, Hurricane Matthew in the panhandle. And so... This uh, disaster relief aspect of our projects, you know, really starting to uh, get some traction, and we're feeling, you know, more and more compelled to do it. You know, we had breakfast all together over at uh, the Renaissance at,
7: at the airport in Atlanta the morning of. Just, uh, I guess, walk, walk the audience through how that day unfolded for you guys, I guess, uh, you know, during the day and, and where you were and, and that kind of thing.
8: Yeah, so basically, uh, like Chris said, we started out in Atlanta um, and then we started driving south towards Columbus, uh, Georgia. And then uh, it kind of seemed like uh, more isolated supercell development was going to start taking place further to the south towards uh, Dothan and uh, in Leary, Alabama, those smaller towns. And so uh, we followed Chris for a while. And, uh, you know, the the ambulance isn't the fastest vehicle in the world. So at some point, we kind (laughs) of. We kind of had to go our separate ways. Uh, you know, we actually missed the uh, um, Beauregard Alabama tornado. Um, we were focusing on the isolated cells further the south. Uh, they, they went tornado-worn. The two to the south that we were on uh, went tornado-worn. Didn't see any tornadoes. Um, uh, from what we could tell, a lot of it uh, was definitely rain-wrapped. The, the area of circulation and the area of interest, I guess you could say, was pretty rain-wrapped um but yeah the the mavic definitely gave us an edge um to be able to see over the tree line and stuff like that but on the drive home it was just kind of like you know we're going to be back out here we need to be back out here to to help these people so that's kind of how our, our day unfolded anyways you know with the rain that was ongoing at the time and and stuff i, I just
7: i didn't want to chase rain wrap tornadoes uh, yeah. across that kind of landscape and uh, you know going south it all works out and uh you know just glad i got to beat you guys and you guys were able to do uh you know some great work but uh i kick it over to Melissa Evan
5: so um, I know in addition to the video that you watched, you guys have provided with some, some images, one of them being this really just amazing image of this, this home structure that has been completely just leveled. There's, there's just this wall that seems to be standing. Can you tell us a little bit about coming across some of the damage that you actually saw and, um, you know, what is there a story behind this particular, um, particular image?
8: The second day uh, is when we actually went into Beauregard uh, to do work. And uh, the, the damage there, I mean, it was, you could definitely tell it was EF4, I mean, it was very, very intense, a lot, a lot different than what we saw further east. And uh, we actually came, yeah, we came across this house, I mean, it looked very interesting, uh, you know, the, the foundations completely cleaned off, um, and there's really nothing left at all on that slab except for um, that one outer wall standing, which is, was actually the front of the house and uh, we were able to talk to um, one of the relatives of the four people who survived in that house and uh he was kind of telling us the story as all his uh, cousins and nieces i think Um, and uh, yeah there's four people that took shelter in that house and it's just incredible that you know the wall that they were taking shelter against was the only wall in the entire house that stood and uh, what's interesting about that house um that, and that street actually um, saw a lot of fatalities, about 10 fatalities on that street, um, including next-door neighbors to that house and across the street. Um, but that, that house is actually one of the reasons why the tornado was rated at EF4. It was a properly built home. It was two code, and there's a little bit of uh, background on that house construction on Tim Marshall's um, Facebook page. And so it was a properly poured slab, and, and the, uh, the walls are bolted to— the, uh, the concrete but it just kind of goes to show that I mean that, that truly was a very intense tornado and the fact yeah. that those four people were able to survive um, I mean that's just that's a huge blessing for them for sure and uh, you know it's really just one of those moments where you kind of get overwhelmed almost by how powerful the storms really are it really puts things in, into perspective.
4: Leah, I wanted to ask you a question. So, what are some of what are your purposes and in, in your goals in doing this post-storm response?
5: So, our goals are just a deliver supplies, whatever families need, identify what that need is, and give them what they need. Um, a lot of it's just food, water, water, and clothing. Um, so that's our number one goal: is to get down there and to see what the, what's needed and provide what's needed. But then another goal is to kind of um just clean up and help wherever we can if that's going out and searching for family photos and that's what we're going to do and that's what we did um, the second day the first day we actually um cut down trees and moved it to the road because the county will only take um within 20 feet of the property they'll t- clean up anything that's within that 20 feet radius um so you have to get all the trees down there so those are the two main goals is the su- supply drop and then just helping out wherever we can.
1: Uh, we have one more additional photo. It shows a, a dry lake bed that you guys were able to capture from your drone. And your drone that you use for storm chasing captures some really compelling images, but also has a mission, as I understand it, to capture data. So what from this event were you guys able to walk away with with regards to images and data? Uh, yeah, our,
8: our, uh, the data that we're, we are after is um, you know, barometric pressure, relative humidity, temperature, those sorts of things. But also our goal is to eventually be able to map uh, in three-dimensional space uh, wind direction and speed using uh, basically what the inputs from the drone or what, what the drone is responding to in the atmosphere. And uh, this will hopefully allow us to sample wind speed and direction in the forward flank you know, uh, of the storm where there's not a, lot of, uh, not a lot of understanding what's happening in the supercell there. Um, and the main component that we're after is vertical wind speed. Um, and hopefully that the drone will be able to um, to tell us a little bit about you know what's going on in that portion of the thunderstorm. Um, but uh, to go further on the uh, the lake bed, this this was actually uh, this, when I first saw this in person, I was pretty taken aback. I mean this this right here, according to the locals, was a very popular uh, fishing pond. Um, stocked full of fish and uh, you know kind of everybody in the community would come around and and fish that on a a nice day Um, and this thing it was slap full of water I mean to the brim and um, after this tornado had passed I mean the damage path literally crosses the center of circulation crossed over this this lake Um, and it is essentially completely dry um and so effectively the tornado had removed all of the water in this lake and uh that that was really incredible and the the locals said they couldn't even believe it too you know when they kind of got their bearings after what had happened and realized oh my gosh the lake is completely dry now you know and it was it's just pretty incredible you know like your average swimming pool is you know 5,000 gallons or so or 5,300 gallons and so you can imagine this you know, several acre, square acre amount of water just being completely pulled out of uh, out of where it was resting is pretty incredible.
7: And that's uh, that's some really awesome stuff, guys. And, uh, you know, before we wrap this up, I just want to give you guys a chance to, uh, you know, plug all your social media stuff. And uh, if, if folks want to follow uh, you, how, how can they do that?
8: Oh, yeah, so our website is thesirensproject.com, and that's where we have a lot of more in-depth, uh, um, I guess, kind of, synopsis on on our trips and on our projects and that it's constantly being uh, updated now um and uh on facebook uh that's www.facebook.com slash the sirens project you can follow us on instagram at sirens project and on twitter at sirens project so uh yeah it's basically the best way to uh, to, to kind of follow us along
7: Awesome. Awesome. And, and one more quick thing before we uh, wrap this up, you know, with your community relief efforts, are you, are you guys uh, partnering with any uh, local organizations when, when you do stuff like this? Or is it just kind of, you know, we're going, we're going, you know, head this up ourselves?
8: Uh, I guess it's kind of, kind of a little bit of a little bit of both. Um, so we'd like to really work closely with uh, uh, local churches and that's kind of our our main go-to that's, who, uh, His Hands Church in Woodstock um, is who supplied us for this trip. And, I mean, the, the response was overwhelming. We, the video talks a little bit about it, but I mean, we just had, you know, 9,800 pounds of water, I mean, just tons of canned food, you know, and everything like that. But And, th- and that's on the uh, supply side, but also on the more direct relief side. These local churches in these communities typically become the uh, central hub, you know, and they communicate very closely with the EMA and and the forestry uh, divisions of of the county or of the state. And so um, churches are really our our go-to kind of thing because they generally supply um, a place to stay as well, which is really important. Um, And one thing that we're trying to focus on is being a a more immediate response, trying to be there as as quickly as possible. Um, You know, it kind of goes in hand with storm chasing. If If we're that close to the storms um, initially, you know, our hope is that we will be able to have a response time that's, you know, very, very fast. Um, hopefully these, these smaller teams that we can put together um, can actually go into these areas a lot quicker, and that's kind of our, our main goal is to be there um, as it happens or very shortly after, so...
7: Oh, that's great man well i want to thank you guys so much for taking the time to join us and uh, you know we really appreciate it and I know the community appreciates everything that you guys are doing do you know help and in, in relief after the fact and, you know uh, just to have folks that are that are willing to, to you know take the time out of their lives to to help others is is really awesome so thanks so much and uh personally I, anytime we're ready to chase again let me
8: know yeah absolutely man absolutely awesome.
1: And that was our interview with The Sirens Project. Thanks to Warren, Brent, and Leah for their time. Now, if you want to learn more about The Sirens Project, we have a couple options for you. You heard their social media channels right there. We're also going to be uploading an extended version of that interview to our Patreon page for our patrons who help support and fund the Carolina Weather Group. And we did an entire show about the sirens project last year and we're going to be re-airing that this friday night at 9 p.m eastern on the carolina weather group facebook channel or you can find it right now on our youtube channel let's bring the panel back in and uh scotty they're doing some really great work there
0: yeah it is it's really cool too I, i'd love to go out and uh, storm chase with them so maybe chris we can we can maybe arrange that that would be pretty cool to go oh, that's out. already
7: done that's a done deal.
0: Uh, Speaking of storms, uh, thankfully, uh, severe weather has kind of calmed down uh, here in the southeast over the past uh, week or so, uh, but uh, we do have some weather effect in the area. I don't know, James, if you can hear me right now, but maybe we can pull up radar, and we're watching a uh, developing low pressure off of the coast of the Carolinas. That should track just inland overnight throughout the day tomorrow, and that's going to push some rain showers into eastern North Carolina. and. Uh, possibly even back into the Charlotte metro area. And, Ricky, I'll bring you in, too. Uh, We're also watching a a cold front move across uh, the the Arkansas, Tennessee area. That'll be affecting uh, you guys first and then into uh, western North Carolina. So uh, we we couldn't really make it a whole week without rain, it seems like.
6: (laughs) No, but it's been a nice little stretch. Hey, you know, another thing about that uh, coastal storm there is that they're seeing some increased tide levels, too. Uh, In addition to the area low pressure, of course, the big super moon, wolf death, whatever they call it for this month's moon. uh, ongoing. I think my dog just barked the moon. That was ironic. Uh, But anyway, so that's going on tonight. So they are seeing some coastal flooding on the uh, South Carolina coastline and uh, parts of North Carolina as well. So. Thinking about that, and uh, yeah, as you mentioned, that cold front swings through late tomorrow in our area. It brings in some cooler air, especially for the overnight hours. Days won't be too bad. Uh, it's coming through with some upper-level cold air as well. So it would be interesting to see if we get any elevated instability, maybe a little bit of small hail out of some of the showers or, or isolated rumbles of thunder tomorrow as that front does come through. And then evident in my area, and again, parts of western North Carolina, we may see some northwest flow snow. I think in my area, White Top, Rome Mountain... Uh, grace and Highlands area you'll probably see some of the uh, the bigger higher amounts for snow totals but it could be uh, about a day or maybe even two days back to back of some Northwest flow snow
4: yeah agreed um, I, I might fight you a little bit for Roan Mountain some <laughs> of the other places in western North Carolina or eastern Tennessee depending on what side of the ridge you're on um, definitely could be seeing some snow totals I' um, pull up a quick map um, I, I don't I think this is definitely overblown in terms of um, there will be no 15 inches of snow anywhere across the, the Smokies, um, but there there is potential for a few inches of snow uh, up above, uh, maybe one to two inches of snow up above 5,000 feet. Maybe some po- pockets of some more uh, if this northwest uh, flow does continue for you know more than 24 hours, or upward to two days, um, maybe even into Saturday, uh, early Saturday morning. Um, but that that part of it isn't very uh, set in stone yet. But we we're definitely going to be looking at stronger winds on Friday um, and uh, that Northwest fetch uh, Thursday night and uh, kind of that moisture fading a little bit into Friday, maybe picking back up later on.
0: And, you know, Ricky, it's funny. I'll bring uh, you and I were talking before the show started uh, this upcoming weekend is the Martinsville NASCAR race. And, uh, we just think about uh, back to last year, and we had a, a pretty big snow event there. So it's really not uncommon to have snow events, especially in the in the mountains and even parts of the uh, foothills and Piedmont into uh, late March.
6: No, and if I forget if the Martinsville race was this early last year or if it was later, uh, but yeah, well, we've seen snow, sleet, some freezing rain all the way into April in my area. Uh, so I always tell people, don't plant your stuff until uh, basically. After tax day, because we can certainly get some cooler events in our area. March 26 was the STP 500 last year. So you're right. Basically, right around this time, uh, Martinsville is where they had that big snowstorm. And we didn't see a whole lot in, in the Tri Cities area, but areas of Roanoke into parts of Western North Carolina, towards, uh, I want to say, Winston-Salem got a good amount of snow. Mm-hmm. In
2: yeah, that I think Greensboro. Yeah.
6: Yeah. And, and so that was certainly a, a bigger March snow, but we've seen big March snows. Uh, so, hey. It, never say it's over until it's July.
0: I seen James had the models going, and we were talking about there's been some uh, internet rumors of potentially seeing uh, some snow uh, even affecting uh, parts of the Carolinas. Even uh, I think at one time the models were showing some coastal snow, but uh, like you talked about, it's really hard to get snow outside of the mountains, and we're here kind of right now to at least to kind of squash that rumor. It looks like it may be just a, a kind of a cold rain next week, early next week.
6: Yeah, and even that moisture that was being picked up by the models is shown there on that. I, forget, I think this is the Nam you've got pulled up there. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so if you go forward here in time, here comes the front. Here comes the front. Uh, some wraparound moisture comes through, and here we go into what is late Friday into early Saturday. You see some of that moisture popping up there across the Delmarva Peninsula mm-hmm. and parts of Virginia. You know the GFS and some other models that aren't as high res as the Nam is when we get this far out. We're picking up on that and I think just the coarse resolution problems were throwing some snow out because we had the moisture it was such a wide area and it was like I'll just change everything to snow instead of uh having it be now shown as rain. So this is the GFS out.
1: now for clarification as
6: people are following along at home. That don't trust the model so much long term, especially when it comes to snow.
0: That's right. I think we're all ready for spring. Uh, this is the uh the start of spring, at least astronomical spring. Uh meteorological spring starts on uh March 1st. But uh we will end tonight's show. Before that, I want to, before we end tonight's show, I want to say uh we continue uh weather podcast month, and next week we're gonna have on Dr. John scholar from the Weather Brains, and uh he's gonna be joining us along with Mark Johnson from uh Stormfront Freaks. And we're just going to have a uh, kind of a roundtable discussion. I want to bring Chris in here because Chris, you were able to represent us. We uh, all of us on this panel. We love Weather WeatherGreens is the uh, kind of laid the foundation of Weather Podcasts. You was able to join uh, Mr. James Fan, Phil Murray, and all the gang uh, over the uh, on Monday evening. How did that go?
3: Oh,
7: uh, it was great. Uh, it was great discussion. Was, uh, there was 10 was ten ten people. Uh, you know, on, the, on their show the other night and, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be one of them. And, you know, we, we continue to have a great conversation about, uh, you know, what to do in, in the south across Dixie Alley with, you know, the rash of tornadoes and especially these killer tornadoes that that affect areas that are, you know, a, a lot more vulnerable to widespread damage and, and and even fatalities, as we've seen, unfortunately. But uh, it's great conversation. Um, as long as these conversations continue, I, th- I think it's going to do nothing. But they help everybody across the entire weather enterprise, but uh, they were great, top notch. Love them to death. They told me I'd come back anytime.
0: Yeah, a great group uh, I know. Myself um, and Ricky uh, has been able to be on the Weather Brains program. So, uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Weather National Weather Podcast Month, you can Google the uh, website. It'll give you a schedule of all the rundown of, of all the shows uh, that's already happened, those coming up, and uh, you can also follow them on at uh, on Twitter at WX podcast month and you can uh, follow along with the national weather podcast month so uh we hope uh we encourage you uh to uh to follow those folks and uh, check out some weather shows and join us next week as we uh, kind of conclude national weather podcast month we're going to have just an open discussion Uh, Talking about weather podcasts and whatever else is going on in the weather world. So we hope you will join us then. But as I was talking to earlier, uh, this is the first day of spring. And so as we close tonight, Chris Jackson was out and about today getting some beautiful scenes of how spring has sprung in Columbia, South Carolina. You guys have a great evening.